And if you would turn in your Bibles back to Galatians, we're at the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. Recently, Margaret and I watched a documentary about the, the making of Saturday Night Fever, <coughs> which, which some of you remember, some of you just heard about because it came out in the late 70s. Uh, one of the great songs that the Bee Gees uh, sang that came out of it that still plays this day is Staying Alive. Uh, Last Sunday, we, we heard the Apostle Paul remind Peter that, that he and, and we uh, are dead to the law, that we're crucified with Christ, and this morning, we're going to explore the flip side of that, that we are alive, uh, and, and what does it mean to be staying alive uh, in Christ? So let's listen in. I'm going to read verses 19 through 21 uh, at the end of Galatians chapter 2. Hear the Lord. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, and Christ died for no purpose. You've heard the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask uh, him to teach it and explain it and get it into our lives. Father, we thank you for this little skirmish that Paul and Peter had in Antioch. Uh, and that you, you used that. You, you caused him uh, to write down, Paul to write down about that incident and record the conversation for the benefit of these folks in these Galatian churches, but also for us. That these are transferable concepts, uh, eternal. So help us understand what it is they look like with our names on them. Uh, and we ask that you do it by your spirit. And we ask it through your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, again, we saw in those, those first couple verses, just as a review from last week, Paul said that he was crucified with Christ. Literally, you could translate it co-crucified. Okay, because he was connected, he was united with Jesus, that, that he, he died to the law. And he taught, as Jesus, Paul spoke about how the penalty of the law, when he just said, I died through the law to the law, the penalty of the law, which is what killed Jesus, was Jesus suffered uh, God's declared penalty of death for, for sinners. And so the law killed Jesus, and therefore Paul was killed. Jesus bore our sin, okay? The sin of his people, what he was wearing as he, as he hung before his father on the cross. And it was, our sin was imputed towards him. It was credited to him. It was put on his, his account. And he was bearing our record as he hung there. And so what he received on the cross, when you see Jesus going through the pain, he, he was receiving what we earned. Okay, that was our record uh, that he was receiving the, the response from, that, which is the wrathful judgment of the God of the universe. You know, that's why Charles Wesley, in that first hymn we sang, he said, you know, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Uh, again, the, 
My, my goal when, when I have my devotions with the Lord in the morning is if I walk away from that, having spent time with, in the Word and praying, and I walk, walk away from that with that stanza ringing in my head, then I know I've accomplished what I need to accomplish that day because I've been brought back to reality. That there's, I've, I've never been so criticized as upon the cross because the cross says that I'm so messed up so twisted, so foul and vile that it required the slaughter of the second person of the Trinity on the cross. So what am I trying to defend? Why am I trying to make myself look good by my record? That's what this whole passage is about. That's what Paul says. You, you've died to the law. The law has so utterly condemned you, there's nothing left to condemn. There's nothing left to have any hope for to think that you're a good law keeper. And be, Paul says because... He died, Jesus died as a representative of his people. The wrath was exhausted on him, so there's, there, there's nothing left on us. You know, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, there, there's no wrath left for you because it was all, it was exhausted, literally. There's nothing, it's, you know, like you see the cartoons with the dragon with the fire that comes out from his mouth, and then he opens it and there's just a little puff of smoke. The fire's all gone on Jesus. And so, God looking on you as his child will never unleash his fire on you. It's all been exhausted on Jesus. And so the, the law cannot threaten you. That, that's, that's Paul's point in dying to the law is the, the threat, the penalty cannot hang over you. Martin Luther, that's why he wrote and he talked about how your conscience should be free before the Lord. The beauty of this is that the law can no longer threaten you. There's no double indemnity. The penalty can't be paid twice. And that you're not under the law, but you're under Christ. And what needs to rule our consciences is the vividness of the cleansing you've received by his blood. And if that's what grips you, if that's what fills your conscience, that's what leads to joy and peace and patience and kindness, etc. Now, Paul didn't mean that by being dead to the law, we're, we're dissociated from it. And, and the freedom from the curse of the law is we're in this ocean of God's grace and God's goodness and God's acceptance. We can go back to the law and realize it's beautiful guidance. Uh, it's a picture of what it is to be Christ-like. You know, the freedom of the gospel says, yeah, we need the law, but just to instruct us not to crush us, not to hang over our conscience. And man, that is, that is such a hard balance to maintain. That's why one of the biggest wrestlings throughout the history of the church in, in theology is that the law has been dealt with, the penalty is gone, but the law still remains. Jesus says not a jot or a tittle is going to go away. So, so Paul last week was talking about how we're dead to the law, and we talked about the penalty of the law. So this morning, we see in those same couple verses, 19 and 20, about how we're alive. Being dead to the law, there's life. He says, I died to the law, why? So that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. It's not I who live because I'm dead, but it's Christ who lives in me. The, he, he's trying to show the fact that he's not, he doesn't have to walk on eggshells anymore. He's alive to live for God. I gave you the illustration last week about playing tennis, that when you're, when you're playing for points, you're what? Under the law. Miss, 
Hit the ball in and you shall live. Hit the ball out and you're out. Okay? That's the law. And personally, I found my deficit to my, my de deficiency is when I'm warming up and there's no points, nothing at stake, there's, there's nothing legal, I can play real well. I can hit the ball like I'm supposed to and use all the correct form. But when I start playing for points, all of a sudden, I start walking on eggshells. I start getting, being real cautious. And ironically, end up performing much more poorly than before. And the focus that, that Paul is pointing us to, that the Lord wants us to make, he says, I don't want you to be focused on what you have to avoid. Because you can be no further penalized. I want you to be focused on what you should do, on living for God. You don't have to worry about when you're going to trip and stumble, because you're going to. But we focus on the fact, I mean, the intent of the law was to show people how to live for God. But when people turned the law into, into this vehicle to be a path to God, then the law just became a slog. It's just like this relentless uh, um, treadmill, this, this mountain trying to climb up that, that, that you couldn't do. And, and it just fought against you. But the weight has been lifted off. It's just like Pilgrim's Progress where the, the burden's been lifted off his back. But it's, it's much more than just mere relief to be yourself and live free. That, see, if, I, if, I'm, if you think that the freedom that Galatians is talking about and that Paul is writing about is just to be yourself and be free, then you don't understand the flesh. Because to be yourself is the flesh. Right? That's to go back and have everything be about me. And, and to, Paul says, he says, no, through the law, I died to the law, so not so I live for my, so I can now live for myself, but now I can live what? To God. The, the, the way this works is, this, this new orientation we have is that, he says, the life I now live in the flesh I'm sorry, back up. First part of verse 20. When he says it's no longer I live, he says Christ who lives in me. The way you live to God is that he actually gives you to himself, himself to you. He is in your heart. He resides in you personally. And that's where the power is. And that, I mean, he, he's not saying that you become God. Okay, he's not saying that, that you're, you're, you lose your personality, you become some kind of divine robot. He's not saying to become a mystic that's channeling God, but he's saying that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, actually takes up residence in you. And that he, he, he's your strength, and he spiritually nurture, nurtures you and nourishes you. And he, he creates this desire in you to, to yearn to obey his law. Because the Spirit has now written the law in your heart. That's the, that's the new covenant promise, is the, the, the law is written on your heart. And Jesus is in you to cause you to want to delight in his will and to long to see others come into his kingdom and under his reign and to know him. And so as he works out, as Jesus is in us, he, he starts, he gives you love. And Jesus gives you peace. And he gives you patience and kindness. So you're not tackling the living to God by yourself because that's being right back on the treadmill. Right? That's trying to keep the law on your own. But now somebody's helping you, you don't get the credit for it. Okay, now when you keep the law, that's a gift. Because Jesus has done it for you. So it helps 
keep me from trying to steal away his glory. Now, the good news is Paul also lives in the real world. Okay, he knows it's not all rainbows and roses. That's where he says in the second part of it, he says, Christ lives in me, but he says, and the life I live in the, what, the flesh. See, that's the tension of the Christian life. Paul, Paul and you, he's got, he says, I've got Christ resident spiritually already in me, but the flesh is also resident, so there's battle going on in your heart. Okay, so when he says we're alive and he says all these glorious things are available to us, he doesn't have his head in the sand. He, he speaks of the, and, and sees the, the reality of what's, what's going on, on on the inside. And this, this is what we call, you've heard Tim and I refer to it, the already but the not yet. The way you compute what's going on in the New Testament and the Bible you know, how do I deal with all these promises that they don't seem like they've been fully fulfilled, but it says they've been fulfilled? Well, they have already been fulfilled, but they have not yet been fully fulfilled. Does that make sense? And here's where you get a great picture of it. We have been made alive. The flesh has been put to death, but it hasn't quite quit fighting. Some of you all remember the, the story I told years ago when I was in Boy Scouts and we were up at our camp and... Uh, the, our scoutmaster's grown son was with us, and he, he trapped me, caught this snapping turtle that was about, the, the shell was about this big around. And so we were going to make turtle stew. And uh, so he, it, it, you know, the neck on this thing is about this big around, so I had to get an axe. And I took an axe and, you know, cut the head off the turtle. And the turtle ran around for 30 minutes after we cut his head off. It was remarkable. Thankfully, he didn't know where he was going, so he didn't get very far. <laughs> but, and, and Turtle stew's good. <laughs> but what stuck in my mind all those years was that turtle, he was dead. He was dead dead. Show enough dead. But he was acting like he was alive. That's the way the flesh is. The flesh is dead. In, in Romans, Paul writes to him, he says, consider, reckon your flesh dead. But it's still acting like it's alive. It's fighting back. It's just been dethroned. And that's the, the tension we have, that my natural self, the flesh, I, it's still going to filter the world and my relationships and des my desires through me first. And there's this willfulness and this self-centeredness that the world exists to serve me and, and to make me happy. And, and the flesh hates the idea that I'm sick with sin. Okay? The flesh, the, the part of me that wants to be able to trust in my own wisdom. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I got it right. That's the flesh. The, the, the flesh just defies the idea that my greatest need is a good physician to make me well. I can handle this thing. That's, that's what gets me in the deepest weeds. And that's why Paul says that in this life, I live by faith in the Son of God. You know, when, when you wake up in the morning, it feels like you're all alone. Right? You've got to make your world work today. It's all up to you. You're, you're, you're back on, on your, your, your flesh is going to want to orient it around yourself. And, and so by faith, because you can't see it, by faith you look at Jesus and you ask him to reorient you, to, to fill you, to strengthen you. That's why reminding yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, declaring you're dead, you know, I go back and I review my, my, my sins. I'm thinking, who am I trying to kid that I can make this thing work on myself? Who am I trying to fake out with this? And that 
I let God humble me. If I'm not deeply humbled, I'm going to just run over everybody in my, in my world. If I, and, and, but if, I, if I'm humble before him and I, I become thankful because of what he's done for me, that just reorients me. And, and the motivation, what helps you love God and love others today, is because why? He loved me and he gave himself for me. You know, this may be the only place where it talks about the love of Jesus. Did you know that? Most of the times in the New Testament, when it's taught God, it talks about the love of God the Father. It very rarely talks about the love of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love us, but it does say it here. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he's done that, so he's the safe place. He's the one I can go to. He's the one I can trust, so, so trust him. Stand in his love and, and embrace it and proclaim it to yourself. We, we need to preach the gospel, preach this good news to ourselves every single day that I'm living for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He lived for me first. Staying alive requires faith. You got to believe Jesus and believe what it is he said. Now, the reason I say preach the gospel to yourself is not, we need to do more than just remind ourselves of it. We got to grab ourselves by the shoulders and say, self, sit down and listen and submit to this. Believe This is truth. This is the best news you ever heard. Hear what God has said to you. We need to proclaim it to ourselves. One-way one uh, communication to ourselves, and it's, that it's good and vital for our souls. So, so the first part we see here is that in, in being alive, God has actually made us alive. Jesus has taken residence in us. It's realistic in that it's in the face of the fact that our, our flesh is resident. It's been killed, but it's still fighting back. It's uh, this rebel attack against Jesus who, who is, who's now ruling and who's reigning and who's alive. And, and I've, I've got to rely on him. And it's, you know, one reason why, I'll bet a lot of y'all have memorized Galatians 2.20. That's one of the first verses often when you become Christians. You say, I've got to memorize Galatians 2.20. You know why? That's a Christian life. And, but it's not just memorizing, it's then remembering it and doing it. But the second thing I want to look at with you this morning is you're either staying alive or you're wasting Christ's death. We're coming to verse 21. A lot of us know verse 20. If you've heard of it, and you're real familiar with it if you haven't actually even memorized it. It was interesting how many of the writers I read this week said that verse 21 is probably the most central core verse in the letter to the Galatians. I felt like that for a long time, so it's encouraging to hear somebody else say it. But nobody knows it. I don't nullify. It's, well, first of all, Paul's pretty strong. He talks about nullifying the grace of God. That's pretty drastic, isn't it? He says you're, you're nullifying God's grace. He says Jesus died for nothing is the second thing. I mean, these two strong statements. So something's going on to provoke this. These, these shocking statements. Nullifying the grace of God, Jesus dying for no purpose. What, what's the big deal going on here? Well, this, what, what, what's at issue here is what Francis Schaeffer calls the present value of the blood of Christ. That, you know, your justification, when you were justified, we talk about being justified and being righteous. Righteous is the condition that being justified makes you, puts you into. Okay, justification is the process of making you righteous. Being righteous is to be acceptable to God. 
uh, to be received by him. Justification is a one-time event. Okay, it's a one-time. Jesus died on the cross, and he applied it to you at your conversion. Justification is a one-time event. However, that's a big however, uh, the, 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 the reference and the impact to it goes on every single day in your life. In fact, probably the greatest theologian in England, a guy named John Owen, he wrote about a 400-page treatise on the doctrine of justification, uh, which I had the privilege of uh, reading for a class I took. <laughs> Thankfully, about a third of it was in Latin, so I skipped over that part. <laughs> but the, uh, right in the middle of it, 400 pages on justification, Right in the middle of it, he's got about a 30-page uh, window where the title says, The Continuance of Justification. And I remember seeing that heading over the page thinking, man, my theology professor would be flipping out if they saw this. Because justification is a one-time event. Well, John Owen was not being unorthodox. What he was saying was, what he was pointing out is that your justification happens once, but you've got to go back and remember it day after day, every hour. The... Remember, last, so those of y'all who were here last week, remember we talked about the wrestling with, uh, just struggling with assurance of knowing God's with you, that God's on your side, or maybe you're in a situation where you just really desperately need to pray, so you need the confidence that God's going to listen to you, or you're just feeling really alone, and the, the certainty that God is present with you, or uh, you're, you're suffocating under the weight of your stress or your responsibilities, and, and you, you need to know God's with you. Those are real practical situations, right? They all depend on having confidence in God. And what Paul is drawing the line on here is you've got two choices. Your confidence in God can be based on how you've been doing, or it can be based on how Jesus has been doing. If your confidence in God is based on how you've been doing, good luck. Some days might feel a little better than others, but the, 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 the bottom line is if, if, you're, if you're placing your confidence in God based on your sincerity, you know, I've, I've been, God knows I'm sincere, so I'm okay, or if it's based on your past experience that you walked an aisle one time, uh, or, or if it's based on your religious, recent religious performance, how well you've been, you know, reading your Bible or going to church or tithing or going to Sunday school or, or, or even maybe your relative infrequency of your conscious, willful disobedience uh, that you've been generally staying out of trouble. All of those are based on how you've been doing, right? And I don't know how it is for you. For me, that's kind of like this. It's probably more like this. <laughs> Little blips that go up. And the, the present value of Christ is that every moment of every day, my relationship with God depends 100% on what Jesus did for me, not on how I'm doing. And so therefore, my the ability for me to have confidence in him is totally based on what he did. And it doesn't, there, there's no subterfuge. It can't, that can't be torpedoed at all. And it's, it's like you've been placed inside a suit of armor and you're untouchable. It doesn't mean you won't be harmed. But, but what, it, what it means is nothing can cut you off from God's promises or from God's presence. He is with you. One of, the, one of the dangers, some of these songs that talk about God's presence, is they act like we come in and out of it. If you're justified, you're in it. Always. 
You're in the kingdom of God. You've been translated in the spiritual realm, and God is always with you. What did Jesus say the last thing? Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Once again, the Greek word always means all the time. That's pretty good news, isn't it? All those times when, when the devil's just wanting to pull the rug out from under you and have you start worrying or fearing and watching your back and, and, and you know, worrying about how have I been doing, how, you know, is God mad at me at this or that? And, and you can just, you can reinterpret, you can erase all those questions, all those fears and say, I mean, read Martin Luther. He's, his commentary on Galatians is great because he just, he teaches you how to, how to yell at the devil. You know, we, we have all these conversations in our minds, hopefully not out loud, but, in, you know, in our minds. And we gotta, we, we got to talk against them and not just receive them when we, when we hear them, but to, to claim God's truth. The last, uh, the last couple weeks have been real busy um, with doing ministry, and then we, the, the two previous weeks, Margaret and I went and spent three or four days uh, down helping her mother move out of her house into an apartment, and we were just either driving or working the entire time, and I just haven't had much margin uh, in, in my life, and uh, like I said, the missions conference is coming up. Usually, I would have had the brochures together a week ago, and all the schedules set out and all this, and uh, I got an email Friday or yesterday um, from Blair saying the missions committee is going to meet today, and I've just been scrapping to try to get this thing together. And all, what started going on in my head was, first of all, I just was, I've been fighting fatigue the last two days, uh, and then I was just going to hear the shame of not being able to deliver on having this missions conference ready to go and meet with the committee. And what happened in my mind was, fearing that shame and the, and the failure uh, that goes with it, I, in the conversation, I was sort of hearing, you know, scorn coming from the committee, which they wouldn't do. That's not the way our committee is. But, you know, but, but the devil doesn't care. He just lies about it. And so um, in my mind, I started, you know, you know listening to all the stuff I've been done. And then you know what I hit? I thought, you know, I'm preaching on this passage that says, don't nullify the grace of God. For if your righteousness could be gained through what you do, Christ died for nothing. And so I repented. I got off. My, I mean, I was already to get on my high horse, and the Lord just lovingly got me off my high horse. I just went and plugged the stuff in. And so instead of being all wound up and fearing the shame or, or whatever, whatever the, you know, I was able to embrace it and say, well, that's, what, that's why the cross, the cross happened anyways, because of my record. What do I think? I'm trying to protect a record. And to actually have peace and joy last night because I got stuff ready in this morning. I didn't have all these things hanging over me. We, we go through this all the time. I mean, you ever find yourself driven by fear of shame? Of having your, having your record exposed? Guess what? Your record will be exposed. Every one of us. You know, you always hear the illustrations about what if we put up in a movie all your thoughts? You will. And you stand before the Lord. Every single person on this world. 
good news is if you belong to Jesus, your record will just be covered with blood, paid for. No shame, no guilt. I want to wrap up, and I know this is going to take, run me over a little bit, but Hudson Taylor was a missionary back in the 1800s. He was the first missionary to take the gospel inland into China. Just, they used to just kind of stick on the coast. He went inland. He also started dressing like the Chinese, grew, grew a big pigtail uh, in, his, uh, in his hair. Um, famous, famous missionary. He'd been on the field several years, and he wrote this letter to his sister. And it's just had a huge effect on me being able to rest in what Jesus has done. And I hope, I hope it will help some of you all. He, he's writing to his sister. And he says, my, my mind has been greatly exercised for the last six or eight months, feeling the need personally and for our mission of more holiness, more life, more power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living nearer to God. And I prayed, and I agonized, and I fasted, and I strove, and I made resolutions. And I, excuse me, I read the word more diligently, and I sought more times to, to pull away and have meditation, but it was all without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew if I could only abide in Christ, all would be well, but I couldn't. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye from Jesus for a, mo for a moment. But then the pressure of duties, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions, apt to be so wearing, often caused me to forget him. And then one's nerves get so fretted in this climate, the temptations to irritability and hard thoughts and sometimes unkind words are all the more difficult to control. Each day brought its register of sin and failure, of lack of power. To will was indeed present with me. I wanted to do what was right, but how to perform it, I couldn't figure it out. And then came the question, is there no rescue? Is it going to be like this to the end? Constant conflict? And instead of victory, too often defeat? How could I preach with sincerity that those who receive, to those who receive Jesus, to them he gave, he gave power to become like the sons of God? When it wasn't like that in my experience says, instead of growing stronger, I seem to be getting weaker and having less power against sin. And, and no wonder, for faith and even hope, we're getting very low. I hated myself. I hated my sin. And yet I got no strength against it. I felt, I felt I was a child of God. His spirit in my heart would cry in spite of everything, Abba, Father. But to rise to my privileges as a child, I was utterly powerless. I thought that holiness, practical holiness, was to be gradually attained by a diligent use of the means of grace. I felt there was nothing I so much desired in this world, nothing so much I needed, but so far from actually getting it, the more I pursued and strove after it, strove after it the more it eluded my grasp till hope itself almost died out. And I began to think that maybe to make heaven sweeter, God just wouldn't give it down here. He said, I don't think I was striving to attain it my own strength. I knew I was powerless. I told God so. I asked him to give me help and strength, and sometimes I almost believed he would keep and uphold me. But on looking back in the evening, 
Alas, there was but sin and failure to confess and mourn before God. All the time, I felt assured there was in Christ all I needed. But the practical question was how to get it out. He was rich, truly, but I was poor. He was strong, but I'm weak. I knew full well there was in the root, in the stem, abundant fatness. But how to get it into my puny little branch was the question. As, as gradually the light was dawning on me, I saw that faith was the only prerequisite. That was the hand to lay hold on his fullness and to make it my own. But I didn't have this faith. I strove for it, but it wouldn't come. I tried to exercise it, but in vain. Seeing more and more the wonderful supply of grace laid up in Jesus, the fullness of my precious Savior, my helplessness and guilt seemed to increase. I prayed for faith, but it didn't come. What was I to do? When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from Dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I'd never known it before. McCarthy, who, who had been exercised with the same sense of failure but saw the light before I did, wrote, but how to get faith strengthened? But how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read it, I saw it all. Paul writes, if we don't believe, he remains faithful. I looked to Jesus and I saw that he had said, I'll never leave you. I thought, oh, there's rest. I've striven in vain to rest in him and I'll strive no more. For has he not promised to abide with me, never to leave me, never to fail me? And dearie, he never will. But that's not all he showed me. As I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed spirit poured direct into my soul, how great seemed my mistake in wanting to get out the sap, the fullness out of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but I was a member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. The vine, now I see, is not the root merely, but it's the whole thing. The root, the stem, the branches, the twigs, the leaves, the flowers, the fruit. And Jesus is not only that, he's soil and sunshine and air and showers and 10,000 times more than what we've ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. He says, oh, my dear sister, it's a wonderful thing to be really one with the risen and exalted Savior, to be a member of Christ, to be attached to him. Think about what it involves. Can Jesus be rich and I be poor? Can your right hand be rich and your left hand poor? Or your head be well fed while your body starves? So think of the bearing on prayer. Can a bank clerk say to a customer, it was just your hand that wrote that check, not you? Or I can't pay this sum to your hand, only to, your, only to you yourself? No more can your prayers or mine be discredited if we come in the name of Jesus, as long as we stay within his credit, which is huge. If we ask anything unscriptural or not in accordance with the will of God, Christ wouldn't do that, couldn't do that. But if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that we have the petitions that we desired from him. He says the sweetest part, you can call one part sweeter than another, is the rest which full identification with Christ brings. 
He says, I'm no longer anxious about anything as I realize this. For he I know is able to carry out his will. And his will is mine. And he goes on to say later, he says, you know, I'm no better than before. I'm dead, but I'm dead and buried with Christ. And being English, I and risen too and ascended. And now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I now believe I'm dead to sin. God reckons me so and tells me to reckon myself so. He knows best. He says, all my past experiences may have shown it was not so. But I dare not say it is not so now when he says it is. I feel and know the old things have passed away. I'm as capable of sinning as before, as ever. But Christ is realized as present as never before. He, can't, he cannot sin, and he can keep me from sinning. I can't say that since I've seen this light, I haven't sinned. But I do feel there was no need to have done so. And further, walking more in the light, my conscience has been more tender. Sin has been more instantly seen and confessed and pardoned with peace and joy, with humility. Instantly restored. With one exception, when for several hours, peace and joy didn't return for, for want, as I had to learn, of a full confession and from some attempt to justify myself. <laughs> that letter turned my life upside down because I, I, I was able to hear through his experience from me uh, that, that it's, it's not about what we do, not even about our believing. Some of y'all struggle in the same way he did. Most of us do. If you're paying, really paying attention, you have a heart. But what he recognized, what changed everything for him was realizing God had done it. Jesus had done it. He just had to receive what Jesus had and cling to that. And God produced the holiness. God started to produce the change and the joy and the peace. So as we tie all these pieces together, again, with Hudson Taylor, I hope that, that if you've trusted in Christ, that you believe you're, you're dead to the law, you don't have to be under the threat, the shame, the guilt of it, but also that you're alive in Christ, to be able to live to God and, and rest in what he's done and not nullify God's grace by, by trying to look back to your record, how good or you've been or not. So let me... Wrap us up in prayer. Father, thank you for Paul and for these people. Again, what they went through, these are just transferable concepts. You know, every single one of us is constantly wanting to stand on our own two feet spiritually, to, to look at what we've done, to think that uh, you'll treat us according to what we deserve, forgetting that that's not real good. Help us, Father, to believe that we are crucified with Christ that we no longer live but that Christ does live in us and believe it and enjoy the fruits of it and we ask this uh, for his glory for our benefit amen